0: Thank you, Austin, for reading our scripture tonight. We're grateful that you're here. We've had a great day. We had a number of visitors, as well as former members here this morning. We had a very delicious meal at lunch and a special thanks to all who prepared food. There was plenty of food, and hopefully and prayerfully, everyone got more than enough to eat. We appreciate so much the plans that were made for such a great day, and thank you that thank each of you for inviting your friends and neighbors and family members. Today would not have been possible without your help. So we appreciate so much your work, your prayers, as we worked towards this day. Tonight we're going to be looking at First Timothy chapter three, and we're going to be thinking for the next few minutes about the theme. There is a place of service for everyone. One of the great things about the Church of Christ is that there is a place for everyone. It really doesn't matter what your background. It doesn't matter where you're from. What matters is that you are receptive to the gospel, obey it, and live it. And in so doing, you become a part, you are a part, of the body of Christ. But within that distinctive body, there is a place, a special place, for everyone to work, labor, or serve. And so tonight, I want us to think about what Paul has said in verses 14 and 15. And we're going to be looking at the preceding verses as well. I want to begin tonight by talking for just a minute or two about the structure of the church. In verses 14 and 15, Paul said, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed or if I tarry, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct or behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. When we examine the New Testament and particularly as it relates to the church, there are two very important facets of the church revealed by the Holy Spirit. Number one, there is the divine side of the church. And then secondly, there is the human side of the church. As we think about the divine side of the church, that is the perfect side of the church. The human side would be imperfect and the reason is because it's made up of people and people are not perfect. But as we think about the divine side of the church, two things I want you to see very quickly. First of all, the Bible says there is one head over the church and Jesus is the one who serves as the head of this divine body. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Paul said, he put all things in subjection under his feet, made him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. In Colossians 1 verse 18, Paul said, he is the head of the body, the church, which is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So Jesus is the head of the church. And I would very quickly point out that he regulates the behavior of the church through his word. He has left us his last will and testament based on Hebrews chapter nine verses 15 15 through 17. You and I, if we want to control our estate, following our death, what do we do? We write a will. That's what Jesus has done. He has left us his will and that regulates his body. So there is one head and Jesus is the head. He has all authority. Jesus himself said all authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. God the Father said that we are to hear him in Matthew chapter 17 at verse 5. And so he is the one head who regulates the one body. And Jesus is the one that paid the price for the one body. Now the one body is the church. The term body and church are often used interchangeably as they relate to this divine institution. Again, in Ephesians 1, and 23, Paul said he put all things in subjection under his feet, made him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. In Colossians 1, 18, Jesus is said to be the head of the church, the head of the body, which is the church. And so they're one and the same. And so from a biblical perspective, there is one head and one body. There are not two heads and one body, nor is there one head and many bodies. Biblically speaking, one head and one body. But what about the human side of the church? The divine side is perfect. The human side is imperfect. When we talk about the human side of the church, listen to what Paul said again in verse 15. But if I'm delayed or if I tarry long, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct or behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so Paul here is saying, that we have the commands of God, we have the will of God so that we might know how to conduct or behave ourselves within this divine body. Now as we think about the human side of the church, I said a minute ago that one of the great things about the church, it's open to all. Regardless of your background, all have the opportunity to be a member of the church. The great invitation of the Bible, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. The promise is I'll give you rest. Jesus is interested. In saving people. People are saved in Christ. And the only way that we can get into Christ is by being baptized into him, according to Galatians chapter 3, 26 and 27. When we're baptized into Christ, the Bible says we're saints. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul wrote to the church of God at Corinth. He was writing to people that had been sanctified in Christ Jesus, the word sanctified, simply means to be set apart. We're set apart from the world unto God. We belong to him. So he said, we are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So we are saints of the most high God. In 1 Peter chapter two, Peter would say you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The church is God's holy nation. In other words, it is a spiritual organization. It's the ecclesia, the community of the saved. It is comprised of people that have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. And in that exalted sphere, we are to walk as children of light, according to Ephesians 5 at verse 8. So we are all saints, and then secondly, we are all servants. Everyone. doesn't matter if you're male or female, rich or poor, black or white, All are servants. We are servants of righteousness. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans 6 verse 17? But God be thanked that whereas you were the servants of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine delivered unto you and being made free from sin, you became the servants or slaves of righteousness. So every person who is a Christian is a servant of Almighty God. That's the design of Christianity. The design is that we would serve the Lord. When Jesus came to earth, what did he do? He came to serve, didn't he? Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give himself as a ransom for the many. In other words, Jesus came to serve, to minister to the needs of others. That's our role as Christians. So we're all servants, but they're... They're is a special class of servants spoken of in scripture. As a matter of fact, there are three special classes that I would call attention to. First, there are those who serve as elders. The word elder, bishop, pastor, overseer, all of those words are synonymous. In the New Testament, we always read about a plurality. plurality of men who serve in the office of the eldership. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7, Paul discusses the qualifications of those who would serve as elders in the church. Elders have the responsibility of feeding the church. What is it they feed the church? God's word. In Acts 20 verse 28, Paul said, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So, elders have the responsibility of ensuring that the church is well fed. Jesus said, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. Elders are going to one day give an account of those. Over whom they oversee, according to Hebrews chapter 13, at verse 17. There is a second class, special class of servants in the New Testament. And they are described as deacons in verses 8 through 13. Right now, we're in the process of selecting men who will serve as deacons in this congregation. I would encourage you to read and study the qualifications of elders. But for the purposes of this discussion, I want to just mention very quickly some of the qualifications of a deacon because right now we're in that process. In verse 8, Paul said, Likewise, deacons must be reverent. In other words, they need to be serious, honorable. Sometimes the term is used grave." He said, they're not to be double-tongued. They're not to say one thing to one person, another to another person, etc. They're not to, as we say sometimes, talk out of both sides of their mouth. And then he said, they're not to be given to much wine. I think about the fact that those who occupy offices in the church, they need to be sober-minded. They need to be sober. And there are a lot of people that have questions about the consumption of alcohol. And there are a lot of verses that talk about the importance of sobriety. And I could give you a lot of reasons why you ought to stay away from alcohol. But then he said, not greedy for money. In other words, they're not to be covetous. They are to hold the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. In other words, they're to be knowledgeable. They are to have an understanding of the word of God. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 3. The mystery that has been revealed, that is the redemptive plan of God that was unfolded bit by bit and piece by piece. Those who would serve as deacons in the church should have some understanding. They ought to have a good understanding of God's redemptive plan in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. And then he said they are there to have a pure conscience. I think about someone whose life is not out of harmony with the will of God. And their conscience bears witness to that. They live in such a way so that they have a pure conscience. In verse 10, Paul said, But let these also first be proved or tested. Those who serve as deacons should be individuals that have proven themselves over a period of time to be trustworthy, reliable, to be, they need to be the kind of people that when given a work they see it through to the finish that's what it means to be proved and then he said they need to be found blameless unaccused without reproach in verse 12 or rather in verse 11 Paul would say likewise their wives must be reverent again serious, honorable not slanderers, not gossips, temperate, or the kind of person that exercises self-control. Faithful in all things. In verse 12, he says, let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. I think he needs to be the kind of person that has a faithful household in the sense that as a mama and as a daddy, we're living a Christian life and we're striving to, to rear our children in the Lord. Now if you look at verses 1-7 through seven, and as you think about the qualifications for an elder, children in the household of an elder are to be what? They're to be Christians, aren't they? doesn't say that about the deacon, but I think that A deacon; Those who would serve as a deacon need to be rearing their children in the Lord so that hopefully and prayerfully one day they will become Christians. And so they rule their children, their houses well. In verse 13 he said, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. I wanted to just briefly make known those qualifications because as I said a moment ago we're in the process of selecting deacons. I would encourage you to read, to study, and to examine these qualifications. And some of the qualifications that are found for a man who would serve as a deacon, some of those qualifications are also found as they relate to one who would serve as an elder. But in looking at the two lists, there are some differences. An elder, I think about an elder, is an older man. He's mature in the faith. A deacon could very well be a younger man. And it may be the case that a deacon or someone who would aspire to be a deacon is not necessarily a people person. In other words, maybe he's an introvert and not an extrovert. Well, if you look at the qualifications of an elder, he is to be given to hospitality. And from that I take he's to be a people person. Why is that? Because he has the responsibility of overseeing souls. Doesn't say that about a deacon. Now sometimes we talk about the work of an elder. It is spiritual in nature. That's true. The work of a a deacon has to do more with the physical realm. But there is also a spiritual dimension to the work of a deacon. Go back and read Acts chapter 6. Philip, for example. One of the first deacons And yet he was a preacher of the gospel So there is a spiritual dimension to that As well Now I want to call attention to the service of the church As, as I prepared this lesson I was thinking about how All of us within the kingdom Have a place We all have, have a place of service and, and the goal is That whether we serve as an elder A deacon A Bible school teacher Song leader Whatever our capacity is We use the talents and abilities that God has given us to fulfill the will of God here on earth. And ultimately, to make the church what it ought to be in this community. So, how are we going to do that? We talk about the structure of the church, but what about the service of the church? We evaluate the church based on what the New Testament teaches, but then what about what scripture says regarding our service in the church? Let me just say that first of all, I believe it begins with the right attitude. Now when we talk about men who want to serve as an elder one day, or those who serve as an elder, it all begins with attitude. The same is true for a deacon, or a gospel preacher, or whatever. But the point is, we have the right attitude. There are five things that I want to share with you very quickly that I believe will help us to serve in the church. I think that these these qualities are very important. Number one, in order for us to serve in the church, whatever our capacity, whatever our talent may be, here's what we need. Number one, we need to have passion. You want to serve as an elder? Be passionate about that. You want to serve as a deacon? Be passionate about it. A third special class that I didn't take the time to talk about, evangelists. Paul talks about doing the work of an evangelist in 2 Timothy chapter four, verse five. But passion, in 2 Corinthians chapter eight at verse five, the Bible talks about the Macedonians. And Paul speaks of those Christians in the long ago and he said, they first gave themselves to the Lord. If we're going to be what we ought to be and if we're going to be involved in the service of the church, if we're gonna do everything we can to advance the cause in this community, we've got to have a sense of passion about us. Jesus said we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. In other words, I've got a passion for the work of the church. And, you know, if it's something you love, it's really not work, is it? The Hebrew writer talks about those who were involved in a labor of love. I've said before that there are a lot of people that have a great affinity for a certain football team or basketball team or whatever. And they will, grow, they will go to great lengths to watch their team, to support their team, to stand behind them. Why is that? Because they're passionate, they love that team. What about the cause of Christ, the work of the church? Are we passionate? A second thing that we have to have, we need to prioritize. We need to make sure that the Lord is number one in our lives. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. That means before anything else. We need to put the Lord first in our lives. David in the long ago made a great statement in 1 Samuel chapter 21 verse 8. He said, the Lord's business or the king's business requires haste. Sometimes we put our own interest Before the work of the church or before the interest of the church. And sometimes we have the attitude, well, if I get around to it or if I can get around to it, I'll get it done. That shouldn't be the case. As a matter of fact, when we talk about the work of the church, it ought to be the single most important thing in our lives. Why is that? Because we have prioritized. We have to have passion and we have to have priority. We've got to give the work of the church priority. There's a third thing that I want to call attention to, and that is we need to be proficient. You can't can't do the work of the church if you don't know what the Lord wants you to do. We talk about executing the will of God here on earth. How are we going to do that if if we're not taught, if we're not instructed, if we're not educated? Think about corporations today. Corporations spend a lot of money training their employees, don't they? Why is that? Because they want them to be competent. There are three areas of work in the church. There is evangelism, edification, and benevolence. How can you teach somebody the gospel if you don't know the gospel? If somebody asks you, what do I need to do to become a Christian? If you can't tell that person what to do to become a Christian, you're not proficient. You've got to spend time reading and studying and meditating on the truth of God. Paul said study to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Peter said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so there's the idea of aptitude. I mentioned a moment ago the qualifications of a bishop or an elder. They are to be apt to teach. All of us, every Christian, ought to be apt to teach. We ought to all have an aptitude for teaching. We ought to to have a, a thorough understanding of the gospel of Christ. And then there is another quality I think that we need in the church and that is we need to be prudent. We need to know what to do and when to do it. There's a time and place for everything. Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 talked about being wise as serpents and harmless as doves using wisdom When you look at scripture, knowledge is the assimilation of information or facts. Wisdom is knowing how to use the information at your disposal. And so when it comes to the work of the church, we need to have prudence. We need to have wisdom, don't we? When I think about the overall work of the church, it takes wisdom to set before a congregation goals and then to get people involved in fulfilling those goals and understanding that there's a time and a place for everything and that all of us have a place, we all have a niche in the kingdom of God and then there is a fifth thing that I think we need and that is we need to be prepared. Now obviously these characteristics or traits that I'm sharing with you, they're not in any particular order and I'm not sure that They need to be in any particular order. But preparing, making preparation. I want you to think for just a minute about what you're going to do or what you want to do in this congregation in 2013. What kind of plans have you made to fulfill that work? Are you prepared? Are you ready? Are you ready and able to take on whatever task is before you? In Ezra chapter 7 verse 10, the Bible talks about how Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances. Ezra was a scribe. And and all that scripture is saying is, He prepared himself. He made made adequate preparation. We need to be the kind of people that are making preparation to execute the work of the church. So the right attitude, and that ultimately leads to action. Two things here very quickly. When we talk about the actions of the church, first of all, our intent is to be productive, isn't it? The Lord wants us to be productive. He wants us to fulfill His will here on planet Earth. Here's what Jesus said in John 15 verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. We bring God honor and glory when we bear fruit. Now. Think for a minute about sharing the gospel with somebody. I have no control over whether or not somebody obeys the gospel. But I do have control over whether or not I share the gospel with somebody. My job is simply to sow the seed of the kingdom, which is the word of God. When I sow the seed of the kingdom, here's what Isaiah said nearly 2,700 years ago. He said, God's word will not return to him void. So I understand I have my part and God, he'll take care of his part. But I have to desire to be productive. I've got to desire to do something for the cause of Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 25. When Jesus speaks of the final judgment, when he's talking to people, what does he say in that context, beginning in verse 31, about worship? What does he say about attending worship services in that context. You know what he says? Not one thing. Is he saying it's not important? No. But what he is saying is that Christianity is more than worship. It's also service. Some congregations have become a worshiping society. You know what they do? They meet one day a week or two days a week and all they do is worship. They are dead And I mean dead as a hammer. Well, the Lord wants us to be productive. And the only way we're going to be productive is if we have the mentality that, hey, we're going to take the work of the church and we're going to run with it. We're going to do everything within our power to be involved. Now going back to evangelism very quickly. I have no control over whether or not somebody obeys the gospel, but I do have control over whether or not I share that message. The Lord has given me a job to do. My goal is to fulfill that responsibility. You have abilities or talents known to you. Whatever those talents are, you ought to use them for God's glory and to the advancement of the kingdom. There's a second thing, and that is, we have to have a patient or persevering spirit. Why do I say that? Because when you deal with people, you're dealing, when you deal with the church, you're dealing with people. And people are imperfect. And because they are imperfect, sometimes you're gonna face, you're gonna face frustrations, you're gonna have problems, you're gonna have difficulties. There are some people that have been associated with congregations for many, many years. And they have literally seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. But why are they still faithful to God? Because they have a patient or persevering spirit. It's not all roses. We all enjoy the good times and the high times and the successful times. But it's not always like that. Sometimes we have problems. Sometimes we have trouble. Sometimes we have trials. Sometimes we have frustrations. Sometimes we have failures. But what do we do? We keep pushing on. Look at the church in this community. The church in this community, this congregation, this church has had her, her share of setbacks. All of us would agree with that. But we haven't quit. We haven't given up. We keep pushing on. We keep doing the work of the church. We keep doing what we can to advance the cause. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not vain in the Lord. What's Paul saying? You keep on keeping on. You don't ever give up. You just keep on. Listen again to what he said. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because your labor is not vain in the Lord. There's a payday someday. There's a payoff. You live a faithful Christian life, what's God going to give you? A crown of life. The Stephanos, the victor's crown. That's what we're all aspiring for. Now, in closing, let me ask this question. Have you found your place in the work of the church right here? What are you doing for the cause in this location? If I were to draw three circles on the board behind me. and One circle was listed as evangelism. The second circle listed as edification, teaching, building up. The third circle, benevolence. Could you write your name in one or more of those circles? What are you doing for the church in this community? There are a lot of things that, that go on behind the scenes there are a lot of things that take place here on a daily basis that no one knows about. But if those things were not done on a regular basis, we wouldn't be here. Little things, little things like opening and closing the building. You got to have somebody to do that. Preparing communion, you've got to have somebody to do that. Those may sound like trivial things, but I promise you, they're important. Sometimes people complain because of this and that and who knows what sometimes people complain a lot but they never step up to the plate to do anything here's what we need we need people who are willing to serve sometimes there are things that that There are things that are needed by way of service. And so we ask someone, and here's what they say, can't do it. No. Look, ask yourself this. If Jesus were here on earth and you asked him to do something, For the church, what do you think he'd say? He'd say yes, wouldn't he? If Jesus stood in your presence and asked you to do something, would you have the courage to tell him no? Would you tell him no? Would you tell him you don't have time? That's not your responsibility? A lot of times, we just don't want to get involved. The work of the church is a lot bigger than just coming to worship services one or two days a week. Work, labor, service. We need people that will say yes. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah caught a glimpse of God on his throne. And God asked a question in the long ago, Whom shall we send? Who will go for us? You know what Isaiah said? Here am I, send me. I can just hear some folks. Well, you better get somebody else. I can tell you right now, I'm not going to do it. The church has too many people that won't do anything. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was sick and in prison. And you visited me. What were those people doing? They were serving. If we're not serving, something's wrong. Let me tell you, let me just say it like this. If we're not serving in the kingdom, then we're not exemplifying New Testament Christianity. It's just that simple. Either we serve or we perish. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, could I encourage you to come to Christ? Could I encourage you to come to Jesus, who is the source of all life? Jesus said in the long ago, except you believe that I'm He, you'll die in your sins, John eight twenty four. Would you be willing to repent of your sins, confess His name, be buried with Him in a watery grave of baptism? Rising to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 3 and 4. Would you be faithful until death, knowing that the crown of life awaits you? Maybe you're unfaithful, maybe you've not been involved in the work of the church, And you'd like people to pray with you and for you. To encourage you to get involved once again in the work. We'd be happy to do that with you as we stand and sing.